0: my daughter who witnessed grace died. You know, she called me that morning after, after I just about didn't make it. She said, dad, what do I do? And I said to her, um, you gotta, you gotta keep going with grace's funeral plans. She said, well, what about you? And I said, just, you got to plan it. Let's just, I don't know how long I'm going to be there, but I said, just plan it as if I'm going to be there. If I don't make it, you're going to plan two funerals. That's how bad I was. And, uh, I said, just plan it out for about two weeks, because we're going to know in two weeks if I'm going to make it or not. Ready to live at the higher vibrations, where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw.
1: Hey, everyone. It's Robin Openshaw, and welcome back to The Vibe Show. Today we have an absolutely devastating story that I think is really important for you to know because not only to keep Grace Shara's memory alive and to do justice to the travesty against her because she's another hospital murder story that I've already told you several of and brought you the parents or the children or the sibling of these people who've been uh, the victims of the loss of their loved one. But I also want to mention before we get started today, put it down in the show notes, but please join my telegram channel because you guys, we are being completely silenced on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter. You already know this. So please get on telegram. It's the only free speech platform. I know it's not great. It doesn't have the functionality of Facebook. There's a lot of bots on there. But the person who founded that um, that platform is David Avocado Wolf, my friend's uh, longtime friend, and he is a, major Russian uh, freedom fighter from Finland who went through what we've all been through in Russia years ago. So please join my telegram group. I've actually never said that on my podcast, and I realized that. So I want to start with that. My po- my telegram group is down below. Go ahead and click it and join it. Join it. But that's where I share, share content so that we can all, as citizen journalists, figure out what's really going on in our world and what we need to do consequently. Without citizen journalists, we're kind of lost because our mainstream media is basically just propaganda now. So welcome, Scott Shara. Thanks for having me, Rob, and I appreciate it very much. So you've been out there telling your story. I've never seen somebody such a warrior for, um, for the truth about your family members' experience. And I want to just really quickly recap the basics of Grace's story. First of all, to not drag you through it, but also so that, and, and you know, you and I talked for a couple hours before, And so this is kind of in no particular order, but I'm just going to hit on a bunch of the things that I think are significant about Grace's story. And then you can, at the end of that, you can add to something you think is important. You can correct anything that I say that I got wrong. But then I want to go into some things that I think are really important that need to be talked about, about this very, very big story. Does that sound good?
0: That's perfect.
1: Okay. Okay. So everyone, uh, Grace Shara was a 19-year-old when she went into the hospital in October of last year, 2021. Grace was born when Cindy and Scott were 39 years old, which we know is common. um, Down syndrome uh, babies are often born more to people who are having their babies late in life. And she was, though, very, uh, uh, she's your third child, right? Correct. And she was very high functioning. Okay, We all know these lovely people with Down syndrome and she was, she could drive, she was graduating high school, she could read and write. Um, In her hospital notes, they wrote repeatedly about how she had Down syndrome. And I think that that was frustrating for you because there was no reason to do that. There are lots of strange things that happened in her story. The the Department of Justice ended up investigating it and totally exonerating the hospital, even though your story includes an armed guard being stationed outside Grace's hospital door. That's a new one. That's one I have not heard. And it looked to you like the reason was to to keep any healthcare workers from intervening in what you consider to be the murder of your daughter. Um, Grace sounds like she was an absolutely adorable girl. And she was a huge Elvis fan. And she actually became friends with Priscilla Presley. She was kind of like a walking Elvis encyclopedia. And her big, big goal in life, her dream, her fantasy was that she was going to be a tour guide at Graceland one day. And she would say, okay, I'm already, I'm already struggling. She would say to people, "I'm named after one of God's principles." So she was raised very well in a, in a Christian family, and with parents who loved her very much and considered her one of the greatest blessings of their lives. There were 22 doctors who wrote in Grace's medical um, notes. You have asked for her medical records. Uh, you have found out since then that there's a thousand pages of content that were missing from what they gave you um 22 doctors i think reported 36 times uh you your family is from wisconsin this happened in a very big wisconsin hospital i believe and some of the factors that you could follow up on any of this that you want to but this hospital put a dnr or do not resuscitate on her chart the night before she died uh, against your will against the will of grace's family Uh, You had your own pulse oximeter because you didn't trust theirs. And they had two different pulse oximeters on her and they were showing very, very low oxygen levels. But I think a very, very key part of this story is that 15 minutes before the hospital put your daughter on a deadly, lethal combination of three sedatives that say right in the box insert that they're known to be a lethal combination of sedatives. 15 minutes before that, your daughter, who was sitting at Grace's side, took her oxygen and found it to be at 93%. 93% is quite close to what a normal person's oxygen level is. So people's excuse to say, we're writing this person off, if there is an excuse for that because their COVID is so bad, really aren't at 93%. Uh, oxygen. And they had two pulse oximeters that were saying she was at 40 something percent and at 60 something percent. So you have three wildly different oxygen levels, but Grace had been functional. She had been talking one time when, if you guys took your eye off it at all, they would do things like, like strap her down and restrain her, put, put your daughter in restraints when she was completely capable of saying, I need to go to the bathroom. And so they put her in restraints to, uh, I assume, so that, so that you know, it is more convenient for them to treat her as a patient. Um, you saw in your chart of your daughter's care that she was never offered barricidinim, which um, well, you saw that they claimed that she was, and you say that that is false, that she was never offered that. You didn't even know what barricidinim was until you were in the hospital. That's something I really want to follow up on is that you were here in the hospital refusing to leave your daughter's side. And so of course you were gonna get exposed to COVID and of course you were gonna get COVID and you did and you yourself were hospitalized. And I think that's an important thing that we're gonna follow up on here. But you had a conversation the day before your daughter passed away with a Dr. Gavin Shokar who um, wanted, and he claims in the hospital notes that you did not, I think, ask for a dni or do not intubate you you disagree and say we refused intubation the whole time um i think five different times you were bullied into trying trying to they wanted to intubate your daughter we we all know okay probably everybody who's watching this now knows that hospitals were given a $39,000 bonus for anybody they intubate so that's a terrible um incentive for these hospitals but Again, I just want to repeat this. 15 minutes before they gave her a lethal cocktail of three sedative drugs, including morphine, which, if you give this combination of drugs, you need to have another drug to revive the person if you don't want them to die, which they did not have at her bedside. They're supposed to have it at bedside. So, 15 minutes before they put her on this cocktail of drugs, your daughter, and you have the proof of this measured her oxygen saturation at 93, which was really brilliant of your daughter Jessica to do, because she was, she was on the watch at the time that Jessica passed away. So uh, as with some of these other stories that we have already shared, they wouldn't, they often would not feed her. They would not give her water. I believe that denying her water plus remdesivir is a death sentence. And you know what, Grace, still was doing okay and then they gave her the the triple whammy of the three sedatives. So then you were in the hospital and we'll go we'll go to that I just I'll let you cover that part about the kind of care you got but there was a um I think most of my notes here are about the care that you got which my jaw was on the ground hearing about the experience you had 3 days later and you know some people might argue that the care that you got three days later was because these people had so much compassion for you because you you had just lost your daughter three days ago, but the care was radically different, and everything about it was different. So, just to wrap up, my sort of summary of the story is that a nurse walked you or, or walked your wife out to the car um, with Grace's belongings after she had passed away. And this nurse said to you that she and several other nurses felt that Grace shouldn't have died today. So with that, where do you want to take this story, or is there anything in there you want to correct or augment?
0: i'll just i'll I'll just add to and just technically make sure everybody's on the same page. So at the beginning, you said the Department of Justice was the one who who said that there was um, that the hospital did no wrong. The Department of Justice, we filed three claims, one with the Department of Justice under the Americans with Disability Act, and then two in the state of Wisconsin, which one is the regulatory agency for the hospital and one for the doctor. The Department of Justice actually came back and said they didn't have time. Uh, They were too busy to investigate. And the two Wisconsin agencies came back and said the hospital and the doctor did no wrong. Um, The hospital system that Grace was died at was part of Ascension. They're huge. They're a Catholic based hospital system with 142 hospitals. Um, That's fairly significant because if you start investigating Ascension, you'll see uh, um, they're involved with George Soros as one of the things, but uh, that's a rabbit trail. It doesn't matter. The, um, the doctor, this whole intubation thing is somewhat important because Grace was never close to needing to be intubated what they did is they couched this. And this, this is significant because they, they do this to the family. They say these type of things tend to happen in the middle of the night when we can't get hold of the family. So they wanted Cindy and I to make this decision just so they could have it in their back pocket. And so when they pressured us for the fifth time, the morning that Grace died, he called and we told him, no, we're not going to do that. So then they labeled her DNI, which is do not intubate. Well, that's consistent with our wishes. But then the doctor chose to label her DNR that morning that she died. Um, I don't know if Grace was not given enough water. That's that impossible for me to judge. She fortunately never was on remdesivir. I was wise to that beforehand, uh, so that wasn't going to happen. And um, you know, this well that
1: may be that may be why they had to put her on the triple sedatives because believe, if we're if well, if they I, make a lot of money, if you're worth more dead than alive, and the family is totally pushing back and saying no to remdesivir and sitting by her bed making sure she sits up. She is um what do they call it proning? Proning her. Yeah. Did, did you have an issue with getting people to prone 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 or pronate her? My respiratory therapist friend says he spent during COVID, he spent most of his time turning Patients, because once you turn them over from their back to their front or from their front to their back, their oxygen saturation would jump way up. Did were they not proning her? Or
0: it was one of the many frustrating things that nobody's ever drilled down yet. But you know, as you know, I've gone through these records so many times. So the second day Grace was there, one of the doctors came in and said that proning is a known help, and so I looked that up. Yeah, that's a no-brainer. So then I. Go out to the nurses and said, "Hey, can you help me with Gracelet's proner?" And they they rejected that. I asked multiple times; they would not help. And so, finally, on Grace's sixth day is the first time she was prone, when my daughter Jessica was in there, and uh, and her oxygen went right up. And it was not all that low anyway. But I mean, it went in Grace's last night. It was at ninety eight and ninety nine all night long and she was prone all night. Uh, So it's a frustrating piece uh, to the puzzle, but I mean, it's just one of many, many frustrating pieces. Um, You know, thankfully this nurse said to my wife at the end when she's walking out Grace's belongings that me and several of the other nurses don't think Grace should have died today because that was the clue that got me involved with this 500 hours of research. And, you know, so I'm very thankful for that. Of course, I wish she would have just stood up at the time and saved my daughter. But at least, at least we're able to share the story.
1: So. You, you were one of the few people who were even aware that remdesivir kills your kidneys, and or and or causes multi-system organ failure. So you knew to go in the hospital in October, saying no to remdesivir, and you were pushing back hard against the vent. And they still found a way for Grace to not survive, and it was a clearly lethal thing. And I, I. I you and I have discussed this, but I think you are assuming or curious about or think that they chose her because she's vulnerable. Um I wonder if the if the reason you were treated so differently three days ago, three days later is the difference between the covid magnet hospitals. Okay, this is all just my research. Okay, nobody's out there talking about this. But it looks to me like there was about 1 in 10 hospitals in America who who even really had covid patients in any significant number. And they were the ones who were incentivized and compensated based on thresholds they had to hit. And I told you that I think that it's like for every for a 90 day period they had to hit like 165 covid patients so certain hospitals became covid magnet hospitals i just made that term up but do, do you know what i mean I and so i don't i don't think i think it would be much easier to pull this whole fraud off to have the federal government putting incentives on the larger hospitals and i do know that the vast majority of hospitals really weren't taking covid patients You know, I've told, my audience knows the story, if they've been following me for very long, that I was walking around in Park City, where I live, Park City, Utah, I was walking around in our only hospital, and there was no one in there. I spent one hour just trying to get a blood draw. Never did get it, because there was no one there to do it, and there were no patients in the hospital. And I asked in the ER when I was walking back and forth and trying to see if there's a single nurse in the hospital or phlebotomist, never found one. And I asked them in the ER, just chit-chatting, I was just like, do you have COVID patients here? And they're like, no, we don't. And while I was in the hospital, I got a KSL story. KSL is one of the major mainstream media outlets in Utah saying that Park City had the same percentage or proportion of COVID infections as New York City. This This was March 12th of 2020. So I got the big fat lie from Utah's biggest mainstream media outlet while I was standing in our only empty hospital. They weren't testing for people for COVID in that hospital. I asked them, they didn't have any COVID patients in that hospital. There's nowhere else to go in that county. And we had the same infection rate. So anyway, those are just like early clues to the fraud. But I, from what I can find, asking all my medical doctor friends and those who are giving me information, I don't think they got a whole bunch of people in the middle, doctors and hospitalists and healthcare workers, to to somehow pick on the vulnerable. I know it it uh, don't blame you for going there. I think it's that she was in this big, huge hospital. So what happened three days later when you got sick and you got sick enough that you had to go check in?
0: Yeah. So the difference between the hospital that I went to and the one Grace was in is it's a small regional hospital, I think four or five hospitals. So that would fit the theory that you're you're thinking, um, you know. So it, it could be that I fit the age range that should survive, or you know, these people had a conscience. But you know, what's interesting when <laughs> so my oxygen was down to eighty four. I had uh, the doctor we're working with, so she said before you go in, you know, my oxygen was dropping the night before, and so then she this was a Saturday morning when I went in, and so she said try. Um, three treatments back to back. So we did the nebulizer three times back to back and I couldn't get it. You know, I was at 84. So it was, a, my wife drove me to the emergency room then. So I asked the doctor we're working with which, which hospital she's, she had one good example of St. Vincent's in green Bay. And I had a dog bite a couple years earlier, went there and I was treated fine. So, you know, we didn't have a lot of experience, but we chose that one. Interestingly, their driveway for the emergency room shares a driveway with a big hospital system. So if you made a wrong turn, and you know it's like you can't make that up. So when I when I walked in, um, you know it was pretty much just like the hospital. Grace went in. I mean they were real negative. Um, they're asking me if I'm vaccinated. Uh, they wouldn't let my wife come in even in the waiting room. And you know, the doctors chastising me for not being vaccinated. And I said, listen, I don't need this lecture right now. I need oxygen. I was having a hard time breathing. Unlike Grace, I mean, I was I was significantly worse when I went in. So after getting out of the emergency room and then getting to my own room, things changed. I mean, it was it was quite a nice experience. Uh, in fact, they asked one of the things they asked me right away is what would you like to have happen? And I said, I don't want any alarms going off. And I don't want anybody interrupting me throughout the night for anything unless I buzz you. And to my surprise, they respected that. And they say to my surprise, because in the hospital with Grace, I mean, they they I asked them after the first night, can you shut or turn the alarms so that they go off in the nurses' station? And they said no. And I thought, this can't be. I mean, we're in the 21st century if you can't make alarms. Where you want them? It doesn't make any sense. So I asked them in Grace's room, "What's the reason the alarms are going off so much?" And they said, "Well, because every time she moves her arm, the alarm goes off." I said, "Well, what's the reason?" Well, they put the they put the IV right in the crux of of the elbow. So I said, "Well, why did you do that?" And they, well, it was easier for us. It's like, oh my gosh. So anyway, in you know, at St. Vincent's in Green Bay, they put the IV in so it wasn't gonna, the alarms aren't gonna go off. And, um,
1: and you're talking about alarms as in you constantly, if you fall asleep and you're trying to sleep at night, and here you are sick, you kind of need your sleep. Then healthcare workers come in and they're waking you up, right? Constantly.
0: I mean, the first night that Grace was in there, I mean, it was 20, 25 times. So when I was in, I mean, it didn't go off at all. In fact, I, you know, so the first night when I I just about died, I got up about two in the morning to go to the bathroom and just the walk to the bathroom. I kept my oxygen on the whole time. But by the time I made the walk to the bathroom, coming back, I could barely make it back to the bed. My oxygen was in the low 70s. And so then I buzzed them, and they came running in. They turned the oxygen up to the max, and it took an hour or two before I was back in the 90s. And then the next morning came... And I mean, maybe the biggest surprise ever. I mean, the next morning comes and the nurse comes in with a little, a little container of pills. And she said, I'd like to go through the pill regimen with you. I said, well, what do you have in there? And she said, I have um, a multivitamin, a probiotic, uh, vitamin D, uh, vitamin E, and fish oil. I said, you got to be kidding me. You don't believe in this stuff. And she said, well, we do here. And it was the first glimmer of hope. Well, then the hospitalist came in. His name was Doctor Smith, and he seemed like a nice man. I started chatting with him a little bit, and um, I was pretty weak. And anyway, he said, "I'd like to try this uh, drug on you called Vericidinum." So I said, "This is the same thing I did with in Grace's hospital stay. Anytime they recommended a drug, I'd have him spell it. So I have my pad of paper. I get the spelling." So then I'd look it up on I have my laptop there, I'd look it up, and then I called the doctor that I've been working with, and she looks it up. And between the two of us, we did we researched a bunch of the studies, and about two hours later we came to the conclusion this makes sense. Interestingly, the main studies with that drug they have it paired with remdesivir, and the patient still did better even when paired with remdesivir. So then I buzzed and asked the nurse to have the doctor come back in. I mean, he was in 15 minutes later, and I said, I'm willing to try this drug, but I don't want it with remdesivir. And again, he respected my wishes. So then they, they put that drug, it was a a pill form. So then I take the drug, uh, within 24 hours, I knew I was going to live. I felt completely different within 24 hours. And I was chomping at the bit to go home, of course, because, you know, my wife is home alone, um, my daughter who witnessed grace died, you know, she called me that morning after, after I just about didn't make it. She said, dad, what do I do? And I said to her, um, you gotta, you gotta keep going with grace's funeral plans. She said, well, what about you? And I said, just, you got to plan it. Let's just, I don't know how long I'm going to be there, but I said, just plan it as if I'm going to be there. If I don't make it, you're going to plan two funerals. That's how bad I was. And, uh, I said, just plan it out for about two weeks because we're going to know in two weeks if I'm going to make it or not. And uh, so she did a great job with that. Um, so now the next thing that that happened, um, again, to my surprise, I knew already that the budesonide treatments were, were great. I was already on budesonide at home. And they come in with the nebulizer and and start having me do nebulizer treatments and thinking, this is insane. This is, I mean, it, insane in a good way because it was so opposite. Every single thing was different than what I experienced with grace. Um, and then the, the really the, maybe the neatest thing, of course, I, I told you I'm chomping at the bit to go home. So after the, Third day, I said, I want to go home. And he said, oh, boy, I mean, you really should be on this. This drug has a 10-day course, and you can't take it home because it causes clots. They needed to monitor me. And uh, so he said, I'd really like you to stay. And I said, "Okay, well, I'm going to stay maybe one more day. And, you know, we're talking just as like two two regular people talking it out. So now the next day comes, and I thought, well, I, I need to get home. And so, yeah, you know, I couldn't take the verapamil any any longer, and um, and so then the 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 doctor said, well, we got to test your oxygen, and you got to go through this basically a stress test for oxygen. So they did that and determined uh, the fact that I, you know, I had I needed oxygen. And I ended up being um, released that day, and I was on oxygen for about two months at home. So I mean, it's it's unbelievable how it was it was how, uh, so I'm 58 years old. You know, it's how I remember hospitals back when I was a kid. I mean, it was just, it was a great experience. I would recommend anybody go there um, because of the experience I had. And I don't think it was an anomaly. I think it was because of the fact that they didn't buy into the agenda.
1: I, I also, I don't know how hospitals work really. I'm not in that system anymore. Was once briefly, Um and that's actually where my whole awakening got to start because to work in that hospital I had to get a flu jab and I spent 4 years in bed after that so that was the beginning of oh. my waking up but I also wonder about private hospitals or private clinics I don't even know if there are any private hospitals but all these doctors again this is just my observation but all these doctors and scientists who are speaking up they all work independent of these big corporate Uh, hospital systems. And so I, I think that your hospital, I don't know if it was like a privately owned hospital, but what you were experiencing was doctors being doctors. It was, it was simply doctors practicing medicine instead of, um, inflicting protocols dictated by someone in Washington, DC, which is, which is what your daughter got. And so I really wanted to highlight the difference. I think there was a doctor too. Is it um like a blood pathologist who because you know some people are gonna look at you and be like, Wow, he's fit, um, he's not over 65. Why did he have such a rough time with COVID? But you had some past with heart disease and some and inflammation, and you said that Dr. Chetty, who's been very much diving into this since the in, into it since day one, again, private doctor, not in their systems where those people are silenced censored told what to do you lose your job if you question it so it's the independent doctors who really haven't been aware of how government has taken over medicine which is the same thing that happened that caused a phenomenon like joseph mangeli you know when government takes over medicine we're all in trouble but government kind of used the covid thing to take over this big wide swath of medicine but you were treated outside that and you were treated like free market system medicine. Tell me about the blood pathologist. Didn't he like take a look at some actual blood results and consult with you about how you should be treated based on your history with heart disease?
0: Well, they did the same um, blood gas draw that Grace had and the blood chemistry. So I was familiar with Grace's um, because I was, you know, this is a nobody's asked about this, but I was charting Grace's numbers. So in Grace's room, they had a glass, the, the uh, shower bathroom setup had a glass, um, um, like it was like a glass wall. And so one of the doctors, I, he was explaining the blood gas, and I said, Can you? So he took a black marker and he started writing the numbers on the wall. So then with every Every time that Grace's numbers were taken, I was charting them on this wall so I could visually see the trends. I'm not a doctor, but I can see trends and see what's going on. So I got familiar with what what was happening, and so the um, I knew because I had been diagnosed with with um, heart disease that I I produce inflammation from two prior surgeries. Both of the surgeries, I clot. I had blood clots. And so, um, you know, I explained this to the doctor and, you know, so then they were watching me very close with the baricitinib. And then when I went home, uh, you know, this is so awesome because, so now I want to go home and I told them about my clotting history. So I said, I want to, I want, I want to go home on Xerolto. And the reason I wanted Xerolto is because that's what I used last time I had knee surgery and I had a blood clot and so you know they're looking at me well, how do you know how do you know this I, we can't just send you home with or I said just can you just do this just trust me I, you know this is, and they did it they they just believed what i had to say about my own condition because i knew it i've studied it before you know it was a, it's it's so shocking to uh, when you hear that but anyway going back to comparing that to to Grace's numbers. So I was wise to these numbers. They're showing me literally my blood numbers and I knew what Grace's were. So I'm comparing them and thinking, Oh yeah, this is, this is bad. So like our D dimers, uh, the D dimer number, our walk around D dimer, which is our propensity to clot is about 500. So Grace in the hospital got up to 23,000. I mean, that's just an insane number. Well, mine was 23,000. And so then, you know, I wasn't super concerned about it because in, in studying COVID, COVID throws these numbers out, but I was concerned about it with my personal situation because of my propensity to clot. So they had done a CT scan on me, didn't show any clots, but I knew if I went home, I'm not going to be monitored anymore. So I wanted to go home with the, the, um, the blood thinner and uh, they prescribed it at, at my request without doing anything more. They were really,
1: they're really good to you as you were checking out, listen to you, listen to you, worked with the patient, what a concept, what a, what a shocking thing that they collaborated with you on what it is you wanted to happen. And I also think it's important to note that, you know, just in case anybody is tempted to say, oh, well, this gentleman just thinks his daughter was murdered. Can you please notice how reasonable Scott Char is that he knows what good medicine is because he received it? three days after his daughter passed away just want to make that point
0: well thank you you know dr chetty i'm thankful to him I mean, he's from south africa he's he's done there's many doctors in the united states have done the same thing they're using the scientific method to figure this thing out and and as you know I, i learned about him from the doctor that's really helped us discern all of this and uh when i you know, his, his link to his research is on Grace's website. But when I, I looked at it and studied it, I thought, oh my gosh, this is why Grace and I ended up in the hospital. So we were on the frontline doctor's protocol. And yes, I am fit. I mean, I'm statistically in, in super health. I thought I'd walk through COVID no problem uh, because of, of how healthy I am. But the reality is you can't, no matter how healthy you are, if you have a propensity to clot and inflammation, which I have both, Uh, That's a genetic disposition that you can't keep your oxygen up. So Grace would have inherited that from me. Interestingly, my wife, her symptoms with COVID, we all three had it at the same time, basically, or overlaid. So we all had the Delta variant, and we were all overlaid within days of each other. Her symptoms were the worst, but yet her oxygen was in the 95 and and over the whole time. Uh, But of course, she didn't inherit my genetic disposition
1: there are some things i want to go back thank you for explaining what your experience was in the hospital which was just so markedly different than what grace got which is there's no wiggle room there's no consult- consulting with the family or if there is five different times she was being you you guys were being bullied to intubate you were told that these things have have a tendency to happen in the middle of the night as in When you're asleep in your bed and we can't reach you, we might need to intubate her. So please let us put this in the chart that we can intubate her so we don't get sued when because you told us not to because we really want to intubate her because fill in the blank. You know, I I, I don't know that I want to say we know that they did it for the thirty nine thousand dollars, but we know that Grace didn't need to be on. She didn't need to be intubated. And you were asked five times. But there's other things that they wrote over and over and over again in the chart Going to just mention what those were because they're very strange.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, they are very strange. There was, there was several, um, when, you know, so what clued me in on this again, you know, it, the God has opened up so many doors to figure this out. So one of the attorneys we're working with, he asked me a question one day. He said, do you think that you would have been strapped down to the bed for wanting to go to the bathroom? I said, no, well, that got me into, okay, what is going on here? So that Sunday after he said that this was about three weeks ago, I went through all the doctor's notes uh, two more times. The entire set of notes. I mean, it was it was uh, a lot of work. And anyway, that's where I came up with. I think you referenced it that there was twenty-two doctors' reports. And Grace having Down syndrome was mentioned thirty-six times. They mentioned the fact that she was not vaccinated six times. They mentioned that that she was Christian three times. They mentioned that the the family believed in the frontline doctor's misinformation campaign four times. You know, that's, it's, it's significant because um, you can tell there was a bias. I don't know. That's the, the why behind it. I tend to think it's more about the money because the 39,000 you reference is really just the start of the money with the vent. The average amount of time a patient is alive on a vent is 22 days. The patient's room gets classified as ICU when they're on a vent. They get a bonus for putting them on Presidex to put the the vent in. And then they have the 22 days of the insurance reimbursement and the patient reimbursement. So my math shows that the number approximates 300 grand. So it's way more than 39.
1: Yeah, I've seen I've seen some some analysis that the average patient who dies in a hospital of COVID is worth three hundred sixty six thousand dollars, and that's across the country. See, Wisconsin, of course, is going to be cheaper than New York City or California, but I don't think people realize just how much money we're talking about. And my friend Jeff Childers, who's an attorney here in Florida, maybe I mentioned to you that he has seen hospitals spend on their. Uh, I don't know if they're, they're outside attorneys or they're in-house attorneys spend tens of thousands of dollars just to keep a patient when the family says, We're, we, I, want my, I want my daughter out of here. They literally just stall, bury you in paper, file against you, go to court and argue whatever they have to to keep your patient. Tens of thousands of dollars. This, this is about money.
0: Well, I think it is. I mean, Ascension as a system, you know, so I, they have 142 hospitals. You, I mean, you can't make this up. They their increase in cash, just the cash they had, increased from 17 billion to 26 billion. Nine billion dollars in cash increased the first year of COVID. You know, that's that was available online, and the math that I figured out is that you know based on their revenue, my background is I'm a CPA. I mean, so when I did that, I looked at this is so said, based on their revenue and their profitability, it is impossible. They could have a $9 billion increase in cash. And so where did it come from? Well, it's from the, the government bonus payment. I mean, this is such a temptation.
1: Yeah. They were probably already mad that they didn't get the 20%. So they take the whole bill and they get 20% if they were able to get your daughter on remdesivir. And so maybe they were kind of mad that you wouldn't allow remdesivir, but it actually starts the minute you walk in the door and they swab you and they get actually compensated for every single swab. Right. So the vent's in the middle. Right.
0: You know, and the money, as you drill it down in Grace's case, if you go back to when Grace and I were in the emergency room, we waited 10 hours in the emergency room and I'll connect the dots when you hear this. So I, I, Asked for the bill after Grace died that they sent to Medicaid, they're, they were only making $1,680 a day. And so she truly was worth more dead than alive. The day that Grace died, the hospital was at maximum capacity. All these stats were available online, to my surprise. So now process, why were Grace and I waiting 10 hours in the emergency room the week before? Well, you know, we we're, were waiting for somebody to die.
1: There's a there's a story I haven't covered it. But there's lots of stories who've come to me. I haven't been able to get all to all of them. As you know, I've had to reschedule you like five times. And I there's a story that of a daughter who says that her mother's death was scheduled yes. because they needed the room. Like literally, someone said we need the room, and I suspect. That something like that was going, now, now that you tell me you waited 10 hours in the emergency room, my friend who works as a respiratory therapist and gives me all the information about what's going on in these hospitals, because he's right here where I live, <clears throat> he's my neighbor, and he works in a big hospital. I'll never say his name, I'll never say what hospital, but he has had people walk in off the street thinking they're going to get a steroid and an antibiotic and go home. Their wives drop them off. And they walk in and they get it a scan. And the minute they see any cauliflower in the scan, which means there's pneumonia, they're like escalating to the COVID floor. And my friend, because he's doing what he can on the inside without losing his job because he has to support his family. No, I'm not making excuses for anybody. I'm just saying he's trying to do what he can. And he tries to help each family. And he tries to fight for them. And he tries to keep them off the vent. And he will not force anybody onto the vent. He's doing all he can as one healthcare worker inside this system. But he will be told, or or the patient is told to go upstairs, and my friend knows nobody comes out of that alive. And he, he has said, hold on, and he gets the wife to come in before he lets that patient go upstairs. And he's not in charge. He's a respiratory therapist, gets the children, gets the wife, and requires that before they send him upstairs that there be some kind of hugs and conversation. Because he knows, and the patient doesn't, and the family doesn't, that that person isn't coming out except in a body bag.
0: Yeah. During it's, you know the first uh, the first month and a half or so, I replayed this so many times. I get up in the middle of the night, two three days a week, and I could have done this. I could have done that. You know the, when they, they wanted to admit grace into the hospital, you know, I, you know, I look at it now and I, you know, that's the day I signed her death certificate. It wasn't the last day, you know, of course I, you know, I, I'm not blaming myself anymore, but I mean, the,
1: um, can, I, can, I say I mean can I say something about that? Yeah, go ahead. I have never and all of these families, I told you before, what they have in common is that their loved one went into the hospital with them to some degree awake. They knew that their loved one didn't want to be on a vent or remdesivir in most cases, all cases with the vent, all but a 2020 story that I did it, it, with remdesivir because nobody knew. Nobody knew in 2020. But I've never talked to a family member who knew who fought harder than you have. <laughs> You did. You did everything.
0: Well, I'm fighting right now. I mean, Grace is so easy to fight for because she loved unconditionally. Yeah, so it's yeah. When I yeah, I look back. And, you know, I, you believe in that that white coat, and even when the even when the doctor at six forty five called us and said that that he's administering morph or he administered morphine, I still believed in that stupid white code. And uh, you know you would just replay it. Why didn't you know, they did so many dumb things. You know, why didn't I just take her out of there? And you know when I got kicked out by an armed guard, we've never left Grace alone. I should have just taken her with me, but you know, I'm fighting right now because of the fact that, well, number one, grace is easy to fight for. I mean, if you had her, nobody should be blessed like we were. I mean, if you had her for a daughter, you'd fight too, um, because you don't want, I don't want any other family to lose their, their best buddy. I mean, you don't want that, um. And, you know, wait, there's, of course, a way more important reason to fight and and God's given me the energy to do it. I mean, this has been adrenaline every single day and I'm working, I haven't worked this hard in 30 years. I mean, so, I mean, it's, it's God doing it, but it's not because he wants to save people's lives in the hospital. He wants people to realize they've been duped. I mean, we have, and me too. I mean, we rely on the government way too much, and we trust way too much, and he only wants us to only trust in one thing, and that's him, and so I think this story has that opportunity to prick people's hearts and see that they've been lied to, and God can use that to to turn their hearts to him and start start searching. I mean, you're always going to come to the same place if you start searching for the truth. God says there's no no one has an excuse. He's given us all ample opportunity. Just look around in nature. Just look around at your body and see what he's done. Um, but you're going to always end up in the same place, which is you're going to see. You're going to start reading a Bible, and then you're going to see what he did for us, which is he sent he sent his son so that we can uh, we can be with him forever.
1: So, thirty years from now, when you and I are in heaven and we see Grace again, I really hope I get to meet <laughs> Grace one day um what would you what would you like to be able to tell her that you did with her memory and her story to serve others
0: well you know it's, that's a fantastic question i mean i've thought about not that exact question but i have just thought about grace you know she she didn't fight um she was it's i have thought this in my mind i've never shared this with anybody before other than my best friend, uh, Dan, I told him that Grace was obedient unto death, the same as Jesus was. Jesus was obedient unto death. So Grace, you know, she trusted her dad. She trusted me uh, to take care of her. And so if I told her that we're doing this, to and she just did it, she didn't fight. You know, so I just, you know, when I wasn't there and they strapped her down to the bed, I just envisioned, you know, she, she just, I would guess she didn't fight it. I wasn't there, so I don't know what she did exactly. But you know, she. I, so I would tell her, you know, Grace, thank you for for being obedient because you know God had other plans. You know, God's sovereign. So I mean, He, you know, so what that means that as it applies to Grace's death, it means that He knew before Grace was born the day she was going to die and how she was going to die, and so. She, her story, God, I don't know how big his plan is right now. I just know what I'm involved with and that he's behind it. And so he's using her story right now to save people's lives. So I would just say, Grace, thank you uh, you know, for being the best kid. I mean, I, you can't have a kid like that. It just was wonderful. But thanks for being obedient.
1: You know, I'm going to uh, send this story to the hospital where Grace was treated. And I just want to say, may God have mercy on Dr. Gavin Shokar's soul and all the other people who participated in this and all the people who are participating in this all over the United States. May God have mercy on the souls of the legislators who are, for whatever reason, passing into law and governors are signing it into law to legally protect all healthcare workers and hospitals and hospitalists who inflict this CDC protocol on innocent patients, like Grace. this should never happen again. And the only way this is gonna never happen again is when the people get lies to what's going on and they stand up to it. And one thing, I don't know if you relate to this, Scott, but Sometimes I ask myself why I am just pounding my head on the bricks and I I kind of know why when I really search my heart is that I'm a parent doing penance because 28 years ago I trusted the people in the white coats who told me that these injections that I gave my son would make him healthy and protected and instead they put him in and out of a hospital and he did not die You are no stranger to grief or to loss. This is not your first child you've lost. I haven't lost my child, but I have. I have in some ways we won't get into, but he has suffered his whole life because of that decision I made. And I didn't know better. And we should be able to trust the men in white coats. That's all. We should be able to trust them.
0: I agree we should be able to. And um, as a country, you know, the the. I want to touch on a couple things here. As a country, we have, the Christians have gotten lazy. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm woken up now. So I'm motivated now. I wish I was motivated before. Billy Graham, uh, three, four decades ago, quipped that if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we've been on this path for a long time, you know, so you and I are woken up and, you know, there's going to be many more people that wake up and, you know, that's what God is doing. Uh, You know, there's a short time, there's an urgency. So um, I see it as urgent as I've been woken up here. I just see that time is urgent. And so relative to Gavin Shokar. And uh, so he's the one who ordered it. Holly McGinnis is the nurse who implemented it. Um, those two, I had to personally forgive. Otherwise, I couldn't tell the story. Uh, you know, so God had to do that. I mean, you can't. how do you forgive somebody who killed your daughter? You, know, you can't do that on your own. Only God can do it. And so, you know, what, what I would want for the two of them is I want them to repent. And so why? So why is that important to repent? I don't, it doesn't mean you have to apologize to me. Apologizing to me and my family is a symptom of repentance repentance means getting right with god for the sin that you did so why is that important well it's important because they're gonna spend eternity in a real bad place and i mean i wouldn't wish that on anybody so i mean that's you know i I would hope that 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 comes out of this that would be fantastic you know as you and i talked when we talked for a couple hours the other day i mean i've been you were shocked at how many programs I was on. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I've been on over fifty programs already. I mean, I'm just this is full time. Like, I want all three hundred and thirty people, three hundred thirty million people in the United States to know Grace's name. Not, not for the publicity of Grace's name, but so that they know this story. And this is, this is important.
1: Well, I personally, I'm going to send an email with this story to Dr. Gavin Shokar and to. Uh, Holly McGinnis, they need to know what they're part of. I think it's possible that they don't know that their legacy will be very similar to Joseph Mangalese, because what they're participating in by allowing government bureaucrats who know that remdesivir kills, who know that very few people survive the vent and the half a dozen or more sedatives and paralytics you have to put the patient on in combination with all the other drugs which no one's ever tested, that almost no one survives that. And yet they keep pushing it. And now they have pushed in all 50 states a law that nobody can be sued for murdering patients in this way. And so my, my commitment to you is that I send it to the hospital and I hope that other people listening, what's the name of the hospital?
0: It's St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Appleton, Wisconsin.
1: So everyone, um, I'll put this in the show notes, St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Appleton, Wisconsin, and I will find emails of these two healthcare workers. Please write them with care and respect, uh, knowing that they may not know what a terrible fraud they're involved in. It's hard to imagine But a good friend of mine has a husband who's an ER doctor, and he is still as ferociously pro-vaccine, COVID vaccine, all of it. He's starting to wake up a little bit. But I think what happens, and again, you're just getting my theory here. I think what happens is these doctors trust, just like we trust the white coats, they trust the CDC. They've never considered that the CDC might be doing something truly awful. And they put people on remdesivir and then they watch people die. And they think they're watching people die of COVID when they're watching people die of a protocol that almost no one can possibly survive.
0: So I mean, I think that's, that can be a piece of it. There's no, no doubt in my mind. Um, In fact, you know, when early on, when you know, you start wondering, people are asking, what do you, what do you want out of this? And, you know, I really hadn't thought about that. Then I thought, well, I would like to have the death certificate changed to the truth. And that, you know, you just, you know, laughingly, you just think, well, what should their consequence be? Well, their consequence should be if they get COVID they've got to check into the same hospital that, that killed grace, you know, and go through the same protocol, you know, the same drugs that they put on grace. Well, here, you take these yourself. But I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm just jousting with you with that. But I mean, it just, it would it would fit the crime, that's for sure.
1: Well, some of these people are telling me their stories. When they talk to healthcare workers one-on-one who are inside those hospitals, the healthcare workers will tell them, I wouldn't allow my health, I wouldn't allow my loved one to do what we're doing to you right now, what you we're doing to your loved one. I, I've had a number of these stories. You know, it's the the surviving daughter or the surviving wife say, This nurse, tell me the person, they'll they'll tell me the person's name. We don't go live with those people who are willing to do anything at all to help our loved ones. We don't go live with those names. We go live with the names of the people who are involved in the murders. Because I didn't start out calling these murders. It's only after reading 50 of them on the website protocolkills.com And after the first one that I was brought into in a Houston hospital, where they hadn't even seen their father-in-law, who was a Vietnam veteran, in 10 days. And so they brought me in to try to just get into the hospital to see him. So you just refused to leave your daughter's side. Like I'm not kidding when I tell you, you fought harder than anybody. This man had been alone in the hospital being bullied onto a vent, which he didn't want for 10, 10 days. And then Stu Peters and I buried that hospital in phone calls. We were hearing from people inside the hospital. We had sources in there that this, people just run around bumping into each other because their phones were all blowing up. And we had protesters out front. And the hospital actually sent people out to our protesters. And were like, you've been given misinformation. And one of the people in the protest said, no, you also murdered my mom. <sighs> so. It's it's a thorny story somebody needed to get their hands dirty on this but I didn't start out calling it murder that's not a that's not a mild conclusion to make and I can't believe I'm saying it you would have told me I would be doing content like this 2 years ago I wouldn't have believed you I would talk about the I would interview the latest book authors to come out with a new health and wellness discovery like what what on earth has happened here um, speaking of the death certificate, the last thing I want to point out is that FEMA, I believe, offers you nine thousand dollars to bury your daughter. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And what did you do when you were offered nine thousand um, dollars? My
0: wife instantly. So we were learned of this from the funeral director, and my wife instantly said, "We don't want their dirty money." And uh, you know that was that was spot on. And <laughs> interestingly, they sent a follow up letter. Um, it was within the last month. Um, hey, just so you know, you can you can get this, and and uh, you know, as we got after we got that follow up letter, I thought, what is going on here? You know, and and it is it's just consistent with this whole thing. You know, they want to have you take that money so that you think, oh, look at how we helped you. You know, where the government is just here to help you, and it's yep. like oh, that's yeah, so it takes your eye off the ball. So, oh man, at least we got our funeral expenses covered, or a portion of it covered. And so you took you take your eye off the you know your, the ball that you should be paying attention to. So well, you know, y- we're not you know, going the money.
1: If you see the big financial picture, too, they're also tanking the dollar highly intentionally. And so, what do they care if they just dump a bunch of cash on all the people they want to be quiet about all this? Correct.
0: It, it actually it's, serves- it's really hush money. That's what it ends up being
1: yeah, and it but it also serves multiple purposes. The more money they dump into the economy, the more they can drive us to the very brink and pull the rug on us with this great reset business. That's so what's on, your? Spot on. What's your website that people can read more about Grace's story, other other um, news stories about um, everything that happened, your research because you went, you really have gone into, well, why did this happen to my daughter? And I've offered you some ways that I I've said to you, well, maybe don't go all in on the idea that they're targeting the vulnerable because I've also not, not that they aren't happy to end the life of your innocent 19 year old daughter with down syndrome who can't fight for herself very well. But I've seen people who are breadwinners in the prime of their life, 41 years old, killed the same way. So yeah, I, I think there's other, other dynamics. So we got to keep, we have to keep asking the question because this is this is so big, it's so hard to wrap our brain around. So I'm going to put down below, you guys, my Telegram group, which is where I release these stories as I do them because I'll go right straight to Facebook jail if I put them there. And you might say, well, why are you being a coward, Robin? Well, because I can't really bring these subjects up without uh, being on my public figure platforms. And I'm going to share protocolkills.com if you'd look, like to go read 50 stories who've been through similar things, these are all individual stories. I don't want to say they're the same story, but very common threads throughout them that give us a clue to what's really going on so that we could protect our loved one when they walk through the door of the ER because they might walk through the door of the ER with a broken arm and they'll get chased with a swab. And if it comes out positive because it's a ridiculous test that is good for what it's good for, but not for diagnosing COVID, if it's set at a cycle threshold of 35 or 40, it could come back positive even though you're not even sick whatsoever. So, um, we got to wake people up to this. We have to educate people to it. So I'm going to put protocolkills.com down below. So you can see just how many people, you know, and these are just the people who actually went and wrote their, their loved one's story up and shared the photos. And, um, I'm going to put some photos in the video version of this. If those of you who are listening by audio would like to go listen by video, just check on the page that we deliver our podcast in. And you can also watch the video because we will share photos of grace throughout this um, those of you who were not watching the video version but also tell us what your website is scott
0: it's our amazinggrace.net and the um so grace's life is on there uh, it's not even complete yet we got a lot more to add so it's it's fun it's a fun website but then all of my research is posted and i chose to do that because um, this story has a believability factor you know so when you hear me talk you think oh is this You know, it's too far out there. Uh, So I put all the research on so people can see, you know, what speculation I, you know, I haven't labeled, you know, what's out of the records, what speculation. So you can clearly see what's going on. And uh, like, as you mentioned about being shut down. So two weeks ago, Thursday, GoFundMe shut us down because Grace's website is now propaganda. And so we have a give send go link, of course, on the website now. But, you know, it's like, come on. You know this. You, you know, I'm just sharing how my daughter died, and but it's now labeled propaganda, so you can't can't have that. I will.
1: I will also share your give Send, go link in the show notes below, everyone, if you'd like to contribute, because this family has uh, already spent a few hundred thousand dollars. They have a they have a strong legal case. It's hard to find a lawyer to take these cases. They've. Pursued various legal angles, and they have some some strong possibilities. And these people need to be pr- prosecuted. So they stop. So if they stop these engaging in government protocols and start acting like doctors again, which is why they went to medical school. Okay, Holly, Holly McGinnis went and got herself a, a degree or two degrees to be able to practice medicine, and instead, she injected Grace Shara with three sedatives known to be lethal. And that needs to be highlighted. And we need to call these people to account. There's plenty of people involved in it besides Dr. Gavin Shokar and Nurse Holly McGinnis, but I'm going to put their emails down below or the closest thing to it that I can find. We're going to do some super sleuthing before we publish this. I will share the emails down below and I hope that you all will share um, this story with them because they are just following orders. Instead of practicing humane medicine, which was their call, I don't think that they went to medical school or to nursing school to kill people. I think they went to help people, and they have gone very, very wrong. So everyone, please take this simple action and send an email to these two at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Appleton wisconsin send up some prayers thank you to god for the life of grace shara thank you to scott shara for trusting me with with his family's story and god bless your family scott
0: thank you robin it's been really a gift and an honor to just be here and just talk like this it just uh it's uh has been very nice thank you god bless you thank you